You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome to uh, all of our participants here. My brother and I, Father Sebastian, wanted to jump online as we prepare for the Feast of the Annunciation and to be with all of you during this time in which we're all kind of hunkered down in our houses and unfortunately so many can't get to church and yet we can all, we can all receive the Word of God through opening the sacred scriptures. So we thought we would just do this in preparation for the Feast with all of you. Hopefully it'll benefit you. Get out your Bible and let's take a look at the biblical text for the Annunciation. And then we're going to dive into the Old Testament to see where the gospel writers are taking us and how our imagination should be fired in this time in which we look to this moment in which God is going to become a man in the womb of the Virgin Mary and, uh, and how it is so biblically rich in the sense of Old Testament imagery. Most of us kind of miss most of what the biblical authors are trying to communicate to us because we don't know the Old Testament story. So Father Sebastian is going to kind of take us back there and show us the way. And so get out your Bibles. We're going to open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. And you, of course, on your own can read, I would suggest reading starting with verse 1 of chapter 1 and then reading 2 verse 26 and then beginning this study here. But let's, uh, for the sake of time, let's start with verse 26, Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, and we're going to go through all the way to, I don't know, Father, maybe verse 38, I would guess, huh? Yeah, that's right. 38, 39. So let's go ahead and we're going to take this uh, verse by verse. We're going to go through the text verse by verse so that we can take each piece and, and draw some value from it. So let's start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Let's let's start there, Father Sebastian, because right off the bat, the uh, the kind of geography of where this is taking place is given to us. Maybe you could offer some some comments on that as far as its importance. Yeah, the the town of Nazareth is really important. It's the the town is a Davidic town in the first century. It's kind of like, uh, almost like a, what a suburb is to a city. So it's, it's quite a distance from Bethlehem. But the original Bethlehemites, the original inhabitants of Bethlehem, the descendants of David have filled that place. And they've also filled Jerusalem by the time we get to the first century. And they're also in having other towns and things around because they just can't all fit into the little town of Bethlehem anymore. And so that's why we hear about Joseph coming from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's the place where he had to enroll because of his ancestry. So we have a clue right there, even without going to archaeology and things like that, we have a clue right there in the text that, that descendants of David are spread out now. And according to Bargell Pichner, an important archaeologist and biblical scholar, uh, he uh, tells us that the town of Nazareth was one of those, one of those sub-towns, in a certain sense, of Bethlehem. It's a, a little Bethlehem outside of Bethlehem. It's a little Davidic town. And this is where Joseph is, and this is going to be important as we read the rest of the story. It's located up in Galilee, not on the, on the shore, but in the region of Galilee and, and to the west, southwest of the, of the lake. You know, I would encourage everybody, you know, we're all kind of stuck in our homes, so you have time. Google Nazareth, get maybe some of the views of the city, the geography, the overlay of the land, its location in relationship to the Sea of Galilee, not too far away. Mount Tabor, not too far away. Cana of Galilee is not too far away. They're kind of like form like a bit of a triangle there, those three locations. Uh, and uh, about a 
probably followed to about a day's walk from Nazareth to like Capernaum on the, on the edge of the sea, probably about a day, a good day. Yeah. Anyways, do the research for yourselves and kind of get familiar with that. Now, right at the beginning, Father, it says in the sixth month, what's the sixth? There's like a a date identifier, but not sure where, what's sixth month? So we're jumping into the story right in the middle of the chapter here. So in the previous verses, we hear about the annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist or the conception of John the Baptist. So there's Luke's annunciation or infancy narrative is actually two infancy narratives or annunciations woven together. And so we hear earlier in the chapter, we hear about the annunciation, Gabriel announcing to Zechariah that he's going to eventually have a son named John through his barren wife, Elizabeth. And she is now six months pregnant. And in the sixth month of her pregnancy, and that's where we pick up, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So there's our six-month marker there. And it's going to come up, too, also at the end of our reading. And talk to us a little bit about Gabriel, because it seems like we should be very familiar with him as far as the story goes. Um, yeah. and, uh, and maybe there's some Old Testament background that we should know. So Gabriel, when we hear Gabriel, we should think of the Old Testament, as you said, and we should be thinking of a very important text for our infancy narrative here in Luke, and that is the story in Daniel's prophecies. This is the book of Daniel. Maybe we can go take a look at that. It'd probably be very, very handy for what We've we're doing. We've got time, here. so let's, let's do it. Yeah, what else? We can't leave our houses, so where else are we going to go? All right, so Daniel, Daniel's the, book the book of Daniel. So that's in our prophet section. So you go to the middle of your Bibles, and you're going to find right there somewhere in the middle, you're going to hit your prophets, and you come to your major prophets over to the left. And after your major prophets, you're going to come to, or toward the end of your major prophets, Ezekiel, and then finally Daniel. So we're looking at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And in this story, this is Daniel, he realizes, having read the prophecies of Jeremiah, this is Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, that the the Babylonian exile was supposed to only be 70 years. And so he's reading, he's doing the math, he's checking his calendar, and he's like, wait a minute, it's time to go home. So he begins to pray, and he prays to the Lord and repents he, he repents of his own personal sin and the sin of his people. He says, you know, I, I am sorry, Lord, for what we have done. We've, we've done nothing but deserve all of this. But I ask now that you have mercy on us, as you always have. Please have mercy, and can we please go home? And so at, as he's finishing up this prayer, it says in chapter 9, this is in chapter 9, um, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, for Jerusalem, that is a wasteland at this point. And Daniel's often in Mesopotamia at this point. He's, he's over there where the exiles are. It says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, now Gabriel's an angel, but angels appear in the Bible, and that's something we're going to look at as we keep reading Luke. Angels appear in the Bible usually as a grown man, and I don't mean an effeminate, androgynous kind of, you know, Swedish thing. We're not really sure what it is. Uh, long, flowing hair. <laughs> Our okay. Swedish brothers and sisters, please. Yeah, no, no problem with Swedish, but <laughs> they always describe, you know, you see these pictures of these angels that appear as a Middle Eastern man with, you know, long, curly, flowing blonde hair, something with curls in it. Uh, so anyway, the, the angel Gabriel appears as a man. And when the angels appear in the Bible, they appear as grown men and often in the form of a soldier. The, the angels are the army of the Lord, Lord God of Sabaoth. Holy, holy, holy. So Lord God of Sabaoth. Sabaoth is Hebrew for armies. And, you know, I think we should probably just translate it into English so people know what we're saying. Lord God of armies, right? And so when you have an individual of the army, it's a soldier. And so when an angel appears, he appears as a man 
often with a drawn sword and things like that. And we can think of all sorts of stories in the Old Testament of angels appearing. So he appears as a grown man here. He's not a, a human being. He's an angel, but appears in a way that typically a, a human being is going to be able to deal with him, right? You're going to interact with him. So he appears as a man. And it says, while I was speaking, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice. So this would, should remind us, and we can't go chasing every rabbit here, but that should remind us of Exodus chapter 29 and 30, the Tamid offering. Every morning, every evening, part of the most primitive, earliest form of the sacrificial system of ancient Israel. This is even before the golden calf incident. The priest of the line of Aaron were to offer a lamb on the altar of burnt offering and sprinkle incense on the altar of incense right there in front of the Holy of Holies every morning and every evening and bless the people in the name of the Lord. That's that Tamid offering, that continuous offering. And that's what's going on in the previous story in the chapter, which kind of brings us into what was happening there in Luke. Zechariah had gone in there this is the time of the, of the, this is the Tamid offering. And he goes and he sprinkles in, he's about to sprinkle incense on the altar. And at that moment, he sees Gabriel, the angel, which is intended to recall for us in Luke's gospel, this very story. So here he, he, hear, he hears from Gabriel, the angel. He says, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding at the beginning of your supplications a word went forth and i have come to tell it to you for you are greatly beloved therefore consider the word and understand the vision and so basically it gets some good and bad news the good news is yes you're right jeremiah's prophecy seven years pack your bags you guys are about to go home bad news the restoration of the kingdom will not happen for 70 weeks of years so not just 70 years but 70 weeks of years. So it's been 70 years, and yes, geographically you're going home. But as we read in, in the book of Nehemiah, we hear Ezra's beautiful prayer there. It says, Ezra realizes that they're still in exile. Even though they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in their place where they're supposed to be, there's a problem. The glory cloud has not returned to the temple, and the Davidic king, the Messiah, has not returned. The two kings, the, the earthly and, and, and divine king, the earthly and heavenly king, are not there protecting and ruling over them. And so even though they're back, and they've rebuilt the temple, and they started to rebuild their houses, and they've rebuilt Jerusalem, they got walls around it, what are they going to do without the presence of God in the temple and without the Davidic Messiah? And so they... We enter then into that post period of waiting where they're wait. When is the Lord going to appear? When is the Messiah going to appear? The, the, the King of the line of David. And they're waiting for, you know, right around 500 years. And then we fast forward to the story we have in Luke's gospel, which is intended as kind of the sequel to what we just read. So I encourage people to go back and read this text in Daniel on your own. But Father, tell us 70 weeks of years. We don't talk like that in terminology now. Really? I don't know. It was 70 weeks. I, yeah, no. You're right. We don't talk like that's biblical language, but it 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And it's intended to remind us of the Jubilee. It's intended to remind us back in the Jubilee of every seven years, there would be a moment of release. Right? Every seven years, you were to let your land rest. And you were to let everyone rest, a whole year of rest. Your servants, everyone just rest. You just pick what you find wild growing along the edges of the fields and your fruit trees and things, and God will provide for you. It's like you're entering into the Sabbath rest of God every seven years. But after seven Sabbath years, the 49th one, then that triggers the 50th year, the Jubilee year which was a time of complete release. And I, unless I'm mistaken, you did a great talk on that for the ICC, right? It was great or not, but, but yeah, we did <laughs> on the Jubilee year. And that actually time-wise works pretty close huh? from the time of the return from exile to the coming of Christ is yeah. right, right about that. Right you've entered in now into the Jubilee when there is finally the forgiveness. And, and just before we move on, this comes up in the New Testament when Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, right? So 
70 times 7. Oh, 409 times? Okay, so when I'm done with that, I can just not forgive my brother? That's, Peter understands what he's saying. Peter is standing there looking at the Jubilee year right in front of him. He is beholding God's mercy upon his people. And when he asks such a question, how often do I forgive my brother? Jesus says, you want to forgive him as, as often as God has forgiven you and your people, right? And, and here is the forgiveness of God standing in front of them. Here is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy right in front of them. So um, here in this, we, we're going to have to obviously go a little quicker through this text because otherwise we would be here all day long. But maybe quickly uh, just share with us a little bit about the detail about Joseph says he, that he was of the house of David. Yeah, so the house of David, this is part of that waiting, right? They, the, the people of Israel had one king originally. The king of Israel was God. But then they asked for a human king. We've talked about this in many ICC yeah. lectures. You covered it in Swords and, and Serpents, right? The, uh, in First Samuel chapter 8, the people asked for a king like all the nations as a, have a human king. And God said, okay, fine, you can have one. It's not going to work out too well for you. So he gave him one like the kings of the nations. That's what they asked. And that, his name was Saul. And after three strikes, he was out. He was, not, he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was acting like a king of the nations, but he wasn't acting as, as God acts. He was not reflecting God's divine kingship over his people. And so finally, Saul's rejected. And now God gives them David. And after David uh, takes the throne... Then God makes a promise to David, and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that only his dynasty would have the right to rule over his people. Only his dynasty is the one that, that would reflect God's love and rule over his people, that be that human or earthly representative of the divine and heavenly king. And so that Davidic uh, dynasty continues on in Jerusalem from the time of David all the way to Zedekiah, the last king on the throne in Jerusalem when the Babylonians destroyed in 587. And then they don't have a king of the line of David, a Messiah, anointed one, for the next approximately 500 years. And so there, when we get to this period here in Luke's gospel, this, the Jews are waiting for the return of those two kings, that divine king and the earthly king, to come back to their, their palaces, their, their temples, same word in Hebrew, in Jerusalem. And so this is that, that waiting period. Luke's gospel is really, it's the, the concluding chapter to the post-exilic period. So let's jump now into this um, this next the next few verses here regarding mary because it, it's a, a a famous salutation that the angel gives her and oftentimes misunderstood by many of our protestant brothers and sisters it says in verse 28 and he came to her and said hail O full of grace the lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God. Well, when we hear that, I think most of us hear the prayer of the Hail Mary, right? Uh, we in the, in the Byzantine tradition have a beautiful sung version of that that we sing during this time, during Great Lent. So when we hear that, though, Luke's not expecting us to hear a liturgical hymn from our own modern experience. Luke's not expecting us to hear a prayer from the Western tradition. And Luke's certainly not giving us some ammunition so that we can argue with our Baptist friend about the you know, relevance of the Virgin Mary. So all of those things are quite interesting topics for another ICC lecture maybe, but sticking close to the text, what is going on? What is Luke expecting a Jew in the first century to hear? Right? We know who is the author, who's the intended audience, purpose of writing. So what is Luke expecting? Well, all commentators will agree. Any serious commentary on the New Testament will, will state that the intended audience of the New Testament books, the authors of the New Testament books were expecting the reading of their material by an audience that knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. These are first century Jews who know the Old Testament well. And so when we look at something like this, we want to go back and look in the Old Testament and say, well, where, where do we get this kind of language? And the text that Luke is expecting us to hear is very important for everything we just talked about in the 
in this book of Daniel. Here, though, Luke is expecting us to go to, in our mind, another text, and that is the, in the book of Zephaniah. So let's go take a look at that. This is, I think, very interesting. If we take, again, our, uh, our Old Testament, jump into the middle, we find the prophets, and then we find what's easiest to find at the end of the prophets is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. That's not the one we're looking for, but we're going to start there. Zechariah, it's 14 chapters. It's pretty easy to find. So as soon as we find Zechariah, then rewind, and you find the little prophet Haggai, and then a little prophet Zephaniah, a little prophet Zephaniah. So if we look at Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah is a prophet during the time of Micah and Isaiah. And if we read it, if we're familiar with Micah and Isaiah, it sounds just, he's saying a lot of the same things. He's preaching to the very same audience as Isaiah is around the same time. And so Zephaniah in chapter three is this hinge point in the book. Up to halfway through chapter three, Isaiah, uh, Zephaniah has been telling them that destruction, chastisement is coming upon the people for their, for their sins, for not keeping the law, for, for not following their God, for turning to pagan gods and things like that in their worship. And that's in, that you, it really comes to a climax there in chapter three, where he says, woe to her that is rebellious and defiled that oppressing city. He's talking about Jerusalem. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in Yahweh, in the Lord. She does not trust him. She does not draw near to her God. And then you get this long description of all the problems in Jerusalem. They're, they're dishonest. They're wicked. They're et cetera, et cetera, the, the inhabitants. So Jerusalem is described as it is in many of the prophets as this bride of God, this city set on a hill that is like this bride of God, covenantly wedded to God like a husband and wife. And she has become, as the prophets say, like an adulterous wife. She's, she's no longer listening to the direction of her husband. She does not draw near to him, but rather draws near to the, to the other gods. That is, she commits covenantal adultery that is idolatry and so and the description of what that then how that bears fruit is all the citizens in the city are no longer walking in the ways of god they're no longer looking like the image likeness of the one true god of the universe they're looking more like the gods of the nations these citizens they've grown in the image likeness of those gods the one we worship is the one we grow into the image likeness of so so they're wicked they're evil they're they're liars there it goes on and on all sorts of problems with them well all the prophets don't want to end on that note. So the prophets usually somewhere in the middle to the end of their prophecies will tell you that, okay, after God destroys the city of Jerusalem and destroys and, and there's this chastisement, then God will restore his people. And that restoration language is in Zephaniah. It begins, especially the most important for us, is in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. On that day when I restore you, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, for I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, those who are left in Israel. So we hear about something that you covered also in uh, Swords and Serpents also, and that is that when the people went into exile, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, all these people go into exile, there were those who were left behind. There was a righteous remnant, and this story is told in, in Jeremiah chapter 40. This righteous remnant that the Babylonians leave, the poor who were left there, who had called on the name of the Lord. They'd never turned to polytheism. They'd never turned to worship the other gods. And so they'd remained faithful to Yahweh, the one true God, even while the king and all the, the, the people in Jerusalem, the aristocracy, are turning to paganism. So when the wicked are taken away in exile or wiped out in the battle. The poor who had remained piously monotheistic remain, they're left behind. And that little group that's left behind becomes the seed from which the exilic, post-exilic remnant then grows. Eventually they grow from some returnees seven, 70 years later from Babylon and they come and they join with the, those who were the remnant that was there. And then they continue to grow from there. And that's that post-exilic remnant. And, and what he says is quite interesting about that group. He says, they shall do no wrong. 
utter no lie. So what a contrast, these new citizens of Jerusalem, these, this remnant, they're unlike the group that was there before. That There shall be found in their mouth, uh, not a deceitful tongue. They shall pasture and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And here we come to the verse that Luke's expecting we know, and that is, Hail, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice. The word there in, in Luke 128 is rejoice, rejoice, be happy. And that's the word here. He says rejoice is in the Greek. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad, exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cast out your enemies. We can hear the Magnificat in there, right? The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And we don't have to read the rest of it, but we, as we continue reading that chapter, it concludes with marital language that God will in some way renew his covenantal love with this remnant, this new Israel, this new daughter Zion, this new Jerusalem, and she will again become fruitful. And, and then all the language there we hear is not only marital language, covenantal language, but we also, and we also hear conception language, God is in you. Then you also hear all those references that we typically hear that we know from the Magnificat are echoes of this story about daughter. So there's a lot else, a lot more going on in Luke's gospel than Magnificat as far as the Hannah story and things. But for what we're doing here, this is, this is the primary text. So again, we encourage people to go back and read this in its context so that you can have, you know, as we were saying before, the, the original audience would have known this text quite well. So when Luke is writing and he just, ha he just has to use that, you know, that, 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 that Greek word, and then all of a sudden, bingo, and, this, and uh, the idea of this restoration that the people have been waiting for. I mean, he's, like you're saying, they're expecting the Messiah to come. It's, it's in Daniel, it's, you know, and, and uh, um, this expectation through the prophets, they're looking for him. So as soon as Luke kind of uses these, this language, it's like triggering. He's saying, he's almost explicit. There's nothing hidden for us. It's all hidden, but for them, it's just, he's just throwing all the, the big ones out there and, um, and, and letting the people, they're understanding what he's saying for us. We're struggling. So it's, you got to go back and read these, th this stuff. Now we're here in, in verse 31 father. Well, actually maybe we just made a quick comment about being troubled that Mary, Mary he, he sees the angel. It says she's troubled and afraid. You know, we've been there to Nazareth, and there's these two beautiful locations. And that's the appearance of the angel Gabriel. The Annunciation kind of happens in two spots. First, over at the, uh, at the Orthodox Church where the well is, where Mary was taking the water. She, uh, she see, the tradition says she saw the angel there, and ran she ran back to her home and then it's there the other side of the town and that he appears to her again and and i i think that's important to note whenever angels appear in the bible people are frightened you know and that's i made that comment earlier because you know it's so important that our artwork our liturgical artwork reflect the biblical story because it's it's the imagery that we see with our eyes that will often influence people more than actually what's in the text. I think of, if you ask somebody what happened at the conversion of Paul, they'd all say he fell off a horse. Well, that's a late Renaissance painting. There's no story. There's no reference to a horse in the story. There's no reference to Christian tradition falling off a horse. It's just that a painter decided to do that in the late Renaissance period. And from now on, everyone thinks he fell off a horse. And he may have fell off a horse, but it's not in the story. So that's how influential a piece of artwork can be. And so when we, when we paint images of angels in our churches, you know, are we going to paint them as the late Renaissance you know, images of Cupid, overweight little babies and things like that? Or are we going to paint them the way Christians had before the Renaissance for 1,500 years? And that was the, as grown men, soldiers who instilled fear when they were seen. Right, which is in the in the iconographic tradition, by the way, is is the way that the angel is depicted: a soldier, messenger, running and coming to Mary with the with this uh, with this this kind of stick that they would run with, and the scroll of the proclamation of the of the good news. There, the hair tied back as they would have. The clothes are 
are flowing that you see this everything is painted there to reveal the truth of of how this took place in the story um so now okay we're in verse 31 father and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son you shall call his name jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom shall be at no end it's interesting now um we have um the house of jacob mentioned the house of david is mentioned earlier um but but let's focus here on the name of jesus because i think for most of us this one comes out of the blue i mean if you're if you're paying attention at least you're not you i don't know like is it's like a new name. I mean, as far as it comes, I mean, I know it's not a new name, but, I'm, but this is the way it comes to us in the New Testament, right? And of course, we sit back as Christians and accept that, but really, we should be asking ourselves, what? I mean, of all the names they could have, what about Moses or what about Joshua or, uh, you know, Elias, grab a good old saint's name from the Old Testament. Hezekiah. What about Hezekiah? Yeah. What's <laughs> up with that? <laughs> no, this is a name that does come to us from the Old Testament, doesn't it? It does. So, and that's a, it's a really important point. It, that when in the Bible, when we see names, we should always stop and say, okay, what does that name mean here? Because names meant something in, in many cultures still today where you have the same culture using the same language and a historical geographical place, that the names of the people in that culture are, are words in that language. But in the United States, of course, we have multiple languages, primarily English, and our names are coming from all sorts of different other languages and cultures. And so someone's name doesn't mean anything to most people. Uh, but... But back then it did. So in the Bible, we see a name, we got to stop. And like you said, you know, hey, we've got some time right now. This is, we can either choose to waste this incredibly uh, unique moment in time where, uh, you know, watching CNN or something, the latest news on, on the coronavirus, or we can use this time to do some studying, do some prayer, uh, and jump into the Bible and do some studying we normally don't have time to do, looking at those Bible maps, and then pull out a Bible dictionary and look up some words and names. So the name Joshua or Je Jesus is the same name. So when we hear Jesus, we should be hearing Joshua, but our English Bibles have tricked us. And I don't know why they do that. But, but in the Greek, in the Hebrew, or in the Aramaic, the, the word Joshua and Jesus is the same name. It means Yahweh saves. And so we have to go back to the original the original individual in salvation that had that name, and that gives us some information about why this is happening here. Joshua. We all know about Joshua. He comes on the scene. The first time we see him is when, after the crossing of the Red Sea, in Exodus chapter 17, after the striking of the rock, water comes out. Suddenly, the Amalekites come out to attack the Israelites, who have just crossed the Red Sea and just had a little meal. So the Amalekites attack. Moses goes up on the mountain. And he spreads out his arms and prays. And Joshua is down there, it says, mowing down the Amalekites. We, most of us are familiar with that story. Joshua, we don't know what his original name was, but he eventually is called Hoshea by the people, Savior. And, but Moses says, no, 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 no. He is not the Savior. Yahushua, Yahweh is the Savior. And so Moses renames him. This is the book of Numbers where we hear about Moses renaming him and saying he's to be called Yahweh saves. And so he's the one that we know as we, as we continue on the story. He's going to take over after Moses. Moses dies, does not cross the, the Jordan River. The people go across led by Joshua. So Joshua finishes Moses' job. Mo, Joshua takes the people where Moses couldn't take them. Joshua brings them into the promised land, back into the garden, of Eden, back into the presence where God will dwell with his people. So Joshua's a really important character for, in the Old Testament. And Joshua, that name then, is important in the New Testament. So we find that when, when uh, the incarnation takes place, in Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, and we have references to this, we hear that this, this 
child in the womb when he's born is to be named Jesus. That is Yahweh saves. So that means God will be saving his people through this man. God will be will be bringing these people across the Jordan River again into the promised land through this man. God will be God will be in some very special way working through this man in a unique way in salvation history. Of course, all of that has very important fulfillment in as we continue to read the rest of the life of the story of Jesus. But that's the just a little hint at where this is going with it. We hear about this baby being born, and he's going to be called Joshua. And that's the kind of imagery that the author's expecting us to hear. That's when we when we think of that name. Now the next detail is given is power packed. And we don't have time to unpack all the power. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can in 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 five seconds or less uh, bring all of this together because all of a sudden all of this kind of uh, these titles is, you know, his position is laid out. Uh, son of the most high. Again, you know, we're Christians. So we're like, yeah, Jesus is the son of the most high. And so, okay, let's move on. But no, with well, the original audience would have heard something more here. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Yeah, but the, uh, David's son was Solomon. So, okay, there's, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. What about the house of David? And of, the, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Or giving us, again, 2 Samuel 7 gets into this uh, regarding David's son, I believe. So maybe you can kind of bring all of these together for us. Sure. So in 2 Samuel 7, as you mentioned, David gets this promise that he will be the beginning of a, a dynasty in Jerusalem, that only the line of David, only the sons of David will be able to rule. And in fact, God says, I'm going to protect your dynasty. Even after you die and your sons are raised up after you, I will, your sons, David, will be my sons, right? Which means I'm going to adopt them as my own. I'm going to take care of them like a father would take care of a son. So even though you're going to be dead and gone, David, that dynasty is going to go on and on and on and on. And I will be the father watching over them, even after you're not around. So that's so. What happens is then the sons of David who are on the throne have the king in Jerusalem have a few different titles. One is son of David, obviously, uh, because Second Samuel seven. They also, because of that same text, have the title son of God, and then they also have the title Christ from the previous story because anointed one Messiah because of the anointing story of how they became a king. So these are titles we hear as we continue on in the story about this child is going to now be, he's the long-awaited return of the Messiah. He's the anointed king, the son of David, son of God, and he will inherit the throne of his father David. That's all 2 Samuel 7 language. But there's also, as you mentioned there, something else. He says he he will rule over Israel, over Jacob, over the house of Jacob. That is, he's going to reunite the north and the south. He will not just rule in Jerusalem. He will reunite the north and the south, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Jew in the south be reunited. And therefore, he is going to be the fulfillment of a very important prophecy in Ezekiel 37, that the north and the south, the, that those dead bones, the people of God of north and south will be reunited under one shepherd, under one staff, under one king, and it will be David. And so there, there's a lot, like you said, we could do, we can keep going, but those are the most important references, and that it will last forever should remind us again of Second Samuel 7, but there's a little little clue there to where Luke's going to be going eventually, and that is that this is also the fulfillment of, 2 Samuel, of Daniel chapter 7, that this one like a son of man would rule over all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations, and the kingdom would remain forever. Mary's response here is, well, let's just say it's strange, at least, <laughs> at least on the surface level. She says to the angel, how shall this be since I have no husband? And we've just been talking in Luke about Joseph. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I don't know. I've seen all the pictures of that young strapping Joseph and Mary at his side and, and so forth. So why does she apparently, I mean, why, why does she say this? Well, 
there are a couple of things going on and you've mentioned some of the problems today. Again, that's how influential pictures are. Right? I mean, the pictures of a young Joseph with big biceps and a saw and his hand, a hammer and all that, those are all, uh, those are all painted in the last century. If we go look at pictures of Joseph in previous centuries, uh, you're just going back just to the, to the, even to the Renaissance, we'll see images of a very old haggard man leaning on a staff, just about ready to die. And then there's this young little girl who just had a baby. And so we, if we look at these pictures, there's something, there's a huge age difference between these two individuals. The, and what we're getting there in the artwork before recent artwork that's lost the tradition, when we look at the artwork, East and West, up until recently, all the artwork was the same. It showed Joseph as a very old man because in the Christian tradition, going all the way back to the early Christian stories about Mary and Joseph, and and still until today maintained uh, this understanding that Joseph was a widower and his wife had died. He had had a couple of kids and there was then this temple virgin, Mary, and she is one of many temple virgins of that time. Young ladies who would be dedicated to the temple, either because their parents were very old, Joseph and Anna knew they wouldn't be around to take care of her, or as a just a gift to the temple. Thank you to God for having given them a child. We can think of the story of Samuel, which is an important story as we continue on here of, of Hannah and Samuel in a similar type of uh, tradition. The temple virgins, they're mentioned in the book of Exodus, the, also in 1 Samuel, of these young ladies that were ministering at the door of the tent of meeting. More on that for another, another lecture. But Mary was a temple virgin, and when she came to the age of about 12 to 13, as with any of the temple virgins, they were married off to an older widower in the community who would take care of them, take care of her, and, and watch over and give her legal rights in the community. She, these temple virgins couldn't be in the temple anymore after the age of around 12 or 13 because of menstruation, blood, and uncleanness, and things like that. So they would be married off. They would still remain as temple virgins, but cared for now in the home outside of the temple precincts by an older man in the community who could be kind of like a, a fatherly figure watching over. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and she has now a conundrum on her hands. How can this be, for I know not man, right? St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Augustine both say that this is a reference to her vow of virginity because of her temple, the, the temple virgin background. And so she's stuck with a little bit of a conundrum. The angels just told her that she's going to be a, you know, a very important woman in the history of Israel. She is going to be the one who will bear the son who is the long way to Messiah. And it's because she's betrothed, she's engaged to Joseph, who's of the house of David. Right? But she says, no, no, hold on. That's not going to work out because I know not man, right? I, I have a vow. I don't, I may be betrothed to the right guy for such a job, but that's not happening. And so the angel then tells her we work things out. So that, that's the, the, uh, the background to that. Well, he doesn't say we worked things out. <laughs> he explains <laughs> how it's going to happen. Well, don't work that detail out later. <laughs> no, he explains how it's going to happen and how he explains how it's going to happen is extremely important. The, 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 way it's, the way Luke describes it and the words that come forth from the angel's mouth are, is, again, big time biblically rich, but, but again, missed by most. He said, the angel said to her, this is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Talk with us about this idea of this overshadowing of Mary. Again, sure. to many, but we can't lose it because Luke's mean for us to see something in Mary that is told about, told to us in the Old Testament. Yeah. So again, this is, and these are the types of things that, that we miss. We're not reading the biblical, the Greek text. And so we're going to miss some of these things. And, but any serious commentary, again, on the New Testament is going to indicate that the primary influence on New Testament Greek is Old Testament Greek. So Old Testament Greek is called the Septuagint. 
about 200 years before Jesus, the Jews are spread out all over the Mediterranean. And the language that unites the Mediterranean is Greek because of the Greek empire. And so wherever you go, if you're in the city of Rome, this is why Paul writes the letter to Rome in Greek. If you are in Athens, if you're in Ephesus, if you're in Alexandria, if you're the language that everybody speaks, it's like what English is today. You could go anywhere and speak Greek and people would understand you. They speak their own local languages, but anyone who's involved in the marketplace, a businessman, any, a politician, anything, they could speak Greek because Greek was the language that united the whole, the whole region. In fact, when the Roman Empire rolled into the area, they didn't import Latin into the area. Latin's the, the language of, of the Italian peninsula. They just, Greek was already there, and Latin and Greek are so close. They just used Greek as the administrative language in these regions. So, so Greek is a very important language. 200 years before Christ, the Jews start translating their scriptures, that, those that are not already written in Greek. Their later ones were just written in Greek, like books of Maccabees. But those that were in Aramaic and Hebrew, they translate those into Greek because they want people to understand in the synagogues throughout the Mediterranean, all these cities, the people have to understand what they're hearing. And no one's speaking Hebrew. Uh, and very few people are speaking Aramaic, except for in a little area there on the Eastern Mediterranean. So, so Greek becomes the language of the Jews in the first century. This is why, for example, the word synagogue, meeting place for the Jews, it's a Greek word, synagogue. So they translate all the scriptures into Greek in this thing called the Septuagint. And then that translation by the Jews from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek, their text, which is heard every Sabbath throughout the entire Mediterranean, is the primary influence on the Greek of the New Testament. And so when we look at a word like, like overshadow here in the English, we go back and look at the Greek that Luke's using. We want to go back then and look into the Old Testament Septuagint and say, how did how did this word get used? This is what Luke's hearing. This is what his audience expected to hear, is the Greek use of that Greek term in the Old Testament. And so it's like chere, like rejoice, like we already saw in Luke 128. So, so he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So you're right, Mary. You're not going to conceive this child in the normal way. Well, don't worry. The, the temple, the vow of Virginia is going to be, is going to be held uh, in place. But, but the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you, overshadow you. Now that word overshadow, if we go back into the Greek, the English word overshadow is a nice word for word translation. It's episkiadzin, epi over skiadzin, to shade. But to shade, not in the sense of what we think of just, you know, some shadow, but shade in the sense of dwell, to, to uh, build a tent. That language to overshadow should remind us of God's glory cloud in the meeting tent in the Old Testament. In fact, the word for tent in Greek is a shade thing, a thing that creates shade. So the, the primary word that Luke's expecting is we keep reading in Luke's gospel, we can see very clearly his intent here. And so I think it'd be helpful if we jump back to Exodus. Okay, let's go. So let's go back to the book of Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 35. So we remember they've come out of Egypt. They've, they're at Mount Sinai. They've had the golden calf incident, but they've also repented now. And so they're building the tent, the meeting tent, the tabernacle, the place where God would dwell among his people. And the story, this is in Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. The description of the assembly of this meeting tent. This is chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. And the passage that's important for us is in verse 34. It starts in verse 34. So this is Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. They finished the meeting tent. They built it. It's all assembled. They're sitting there looking at it saying, wow, isn't this great? And then verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud abode or rested, whatever our audience's English translation had there, the cloud rested or abode upon it, dwelt upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that word abode or rested or dwelt, whatever English translation someone has in front of them, 
That word there in the Greek is episkianzin. And in fact, this is not for Luke, some random, you know, shot in the dark, hoping they're gonna, that his audience is going to catch this connection. The word episkianzin is in the Greek Septuagint, what's called a technical term in translation work. When the Jews translated from the Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek, they reserved the word episkiadzin in Greek. They kept that in their pocket and only pulled it out and used it in their translation. When the glory cloud of God rested on the earth. And that's the only time they used the word. And in fact, as I said, the influence of the Old Testament Greek on the New Testament, you can see this in the New Testament as well. The word episkiadzin appears, you could say in four places in the New Testament, but it's actually in only two. It appears the Mount of Transfiguration, when the glory cloud of God rests, comes down, overshadows them all, right? Everyone can see the Old Testament overshadowing glory cloud imagery there. That's the, that's the translation, uh, the, the transfiguration, which occurs in three different gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's really one, one occurrence. The other place it occurs is right here in Luke's gospel, episkiadzin. Glory of the Lord is going to, the power of the Lord is going to overshadow you. And why is he doing this? Well, Luke is telling us in this very precise language because he's trying to tell something about this child. If the glory cloud is going to overshadow Mary, then as many have noted, she's the Ark of the Covenant. She's the Ark of the New Covenant then, just like in the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. That's what Luke's expecting you're going to see immediately. But the purpose of the Ark in the Old Testament was not just to be a box that they carried around. It was a box. It carried stuff inside of it. The box in the Old Testament, this, the Ark of the Covenant, if we go back and read it in, in Exodus chapter 25, the tablets of stone were supposed to be put in that box. And then the glory cloud would rest upon the lid of that box. And so what Luke's showing us is that the long-awaited return of not only the earthly Messiah, the earthly king has come in this, in this future uh, conception that he's telling Mary about, that this child is not simply the son of David, the, the return of the earthly Messiah, but he's actually the return of the glory cloud to his people. He's the return of both kings, because this child is not just of the line of David, He's not just man, but he is God. He is the word of God in the flesh. And that should trigger for our audience a very important passage from the Old Testament. It's important for Luke. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following, which I think you quoted just a few weeks ago in one of our, one of our lection, lectionary discussions yeah. of the coming new covenant when the word of God will be written in the flesh of mankind, right? We would suddenly, we'd finally walk in his ways. And that's why he says, and this son of God will be called holy son of God. Holy means set apart, different. He's not going to be like the sons of God, that is the sons of David, the Messiah from before. He's not going to be like all those before. He will be of that line. But he will be unique because he will also be not just the earthly king, but the divine king. You know, uh, I think to understand how powerful this moment is, this proclamation of the angel is, for us, we have to realize that for five, well, more than 500 years, the major problem that God's people faced was not the situation that they were under the oppression of the Romans or the Greeks or the Persians. The fact that they were under their, they were oppressed by them was due to a further problem. And that is that the glory cloud of God had, um, left the temple and was when they returned and they rebuilt the temple after the Babylonian exile, the glory cloud never returned. And so the great hope and prayer of the people was that God would come again and would make his presence known among his people by way of the presence of the, of the as you're saying, the, the overshadowing presence of God. Mary becomes in this moment that I was thinking while you were talking, the tent of meeting, the place where God and man come together 
and converse with one another. In fact, there's a beautiful, there's a, a, a old test, a, a, um, pre-Christian tradition, a Jewish tradition that, that when the high priest went into the temple once a year, into the Holy of Holies, that God actually spoke audibly to him over the mercy seat of the ark. And, you know, we, we, we think about this. When, when a person speaks, they share what's within them, and now what's within them becomes within you. Like, I, I'm sharing with you something right now. You know, it's, and it's now nine months, and this feast day, now nine months until the birth of Christ. You think, oh, I didn't think about that connection between annunciation and nine months later is Christmas. Yeah, so I just shared something with you. What was formerly mine is now yours, and we are made one in that way. That's how, that's how, what, how, why God gave us communication so that when we speak with him and he speaks with us, the two become one. Mary is the tent of meeting in which man and God are joined together again. But remember, we are also in the, this pilgrimage of Lent, this pilgrimage in which we are preparing with the catechumens to be received into the church and receive as each one of us did on the day of our baptism and, and chrismation or confirmation that Holy Spirit came down upon us. You know, what happened, and this is so important to remember, what happened to Mary in the New Testament, what happened to Mary in this moment was a prefigurement of what God wants to have happen to each and every one of us, namely that the Holy Spirit will be poured down upon us. And by the, by the power of God, the Lord himself will become present within us. You mentioned Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. I want to turn there as we come to a conclusion today because it's such an important text, one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Um, so let's go ahead and turn there. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you find in your Bible the, uh, the Psalms, keep going. Proverbs, keep going, keep going. Isaiah, keep going. You're going to find Jeremiah in there. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant. Remember, a covenant is the joining of two parties as one. Not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers when I took them from the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. The two shall become one flesh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor. And, each, and, so, and he goes on. And uh, this is an absolutely beautiful text. When we meditate upon this beautiful feast of the Annunciation, what God is going to do with us in this moment of the incarnation and in this moment in which in our baptism, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when we receive the fullness of this initiation into the church, God is going to become present within us. Our whole Lenten preparation is about this moment, this feast of the incarnation. I like to call the feast of the Annunciation, the feast of the incarnation. Most people think the feast of the incarnation is Christmas. No, 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 no. The feast of the incarnation is right now when Mary says, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Let us open our hearts, my brothers and sisters on this feast day, that the Lord might become present within us and how timely this is in this time of crisis in our society that we are to be the presence of them. We are to be as Mary, the, meet, uh, the, the, the tent of meeting between God and man, to be the presence of Christ because we are Christians, to be the presence of the Lord in the lives of those around us. Uh, I know I speak on behalf of Father Sebastian and myself uh, to, uh, to, to wish you a blessed feast day, to rejoice in this beautiful feast day, that we might prepare ourselves for the greatest feast of all, the resurrection of Christ our God, and to him be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. 
The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.